All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. I'm Glenn McDorman, and this is ATAS, your artificial afterlife speculative fiction book club podcast by Clay Temple Media. This episode, we are talking about To Your Scattered Bodies Go by Philip Jose Farmer. This is a book that was originally published in 1971, and it is the first book in the Riverworld series. It also won the Hugo Award for that year. And in general, I, th- I think the Riverworld books have had a really large, really significant impact on speculative fiction. There have been a number of adaptations, both for screen and for radio. Uh, the most recent of them is from 2010, and uh, it starred a, a second-tier actor from uh, Battlestar Galactica. But I've actually never read this book before, uh, though it is something that I heard about extensively from a military friend, and I was always interested in it, or at least, you know, was interested in it once I heard about it from this military friend. But uh, back in those days, I was just way too busy reading Gene Wolfe to to ever make time for it. And so I was really excited when one of our Patreon supporters nominated this book, and I'm pretty happy that the rest of the supporters voted for it. And supporters, I should say, really, really voted for it. There were 10 votes separating it from the second place book, which we will do next month. That uh, second place book was The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs. Uh, That book has been on the ballot for a while. It's constantly, constantly coming in third and just missing it. So I'm glad it finally made it. Uh, But it was close. The the third and fourth books were tied, and they were only two votes behind. And, And those, by the way, were the the Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, and then uh, the Way of Shadows by Brent Weeks. So those are going to go back on the ballot for next time. Uh, there's going to be some Daisy Johnson and Paul Anderson and others that are, are are still on the ballot. Those are holdovers for a little while. Also, you know, just missing it. And since we are talking about the ballots, let me remind you that, hey, you can have your say in which of these books we cover, and you can do that by becoming a patron on Patreon at our second tier or higher. And in some of the the higher tiers as well, you also get a free nomination. You also get discounts on subsequent nominations and as well as commissions. So if there's a novel that you would like to hear me talk about, if there's a novel that you would like us to read together for this show, and you are not yet a Patreon supporter, please do take a look at that at patreon.com slash Media. There are a lot of ways for you to get me to read the book that you would like me to. And let me say as well that, you know, this whole enterprise, a whole podcast network, this show, all of it is only possible with your support. And we do think the benefits of being a Patreon supporter are pretty awesome, and we hope you will too. All right, that was a bit of a meandering intro, just to say that, hey, I'd never read this book before. So uh, now that that's out of the way, let's let's get into it. Let's uh, Let's take a deep breath and go talk about To Your Scattered Bodies Go. Riverworld is a science fiction story, but it is a science fiction story that is set in a secondary world. It's a a world that is not our world, but it is a story about human beings. And specifically, it is mostly about humans of our own civilization. That is to say, the industrialized world of the, the 19th and 20th, and of course now also the early 21st centuries, although, you know, this book is 50 years old. The premise of Riverworld is that every human who's ever lived has been resurrected on another planet, and all at the same time, all 37 billion humans there have ever been resurrected on another planet at the same time. And this resurrection, it it is bodily. People come back in bodies that resemble their old ones, but there are some peculiarities to that. Foremost, or eh, what's most obvious anyway at the start of the book, is that everyone is aged around 25 or so, no matter how old they were when they died, uh, unless they were younger. 
The other really obvious thing at the start is hair. People are only able to grow hair on their heads now. There's no more beards. There's also no more pubic hair or leg hair or chest hair or anything like that. Also, no one gets pregnant, despite the fact that there is an awful lot of sex going on in this story uh, uh, and in this world, maybe more generally speaking. Uh, That is something that we'll talk about a little bit in the next segment. And although there are babies and children here in this world, babies and children who died and, and have now been resurrected here, they're all aging. And so in 20 years, everyone's going to be an adult. And we should say that the people who've come back and are all in their mid-20s, you know, whether or not they were 70 or 80 or 90 or 50 or whatever when they died, uh, they're not aging. They're just going to perpetually be, you know, 25, 26, whatever, whatever their sort of ideal image of their self is. Uh, and the last thing to say about the the bodies here in this resurrection is that People can't die. It's not just that they're not aging. They're also not going to die. Uh, Their present body, though, this can be destroyed, but the person in the body will simply be resurrected in a new body, though they won't be resurrected in the same place. And so there are good reasons to try not to die, even if you get yourself in a, you know, a tricky situation. All right, so that is the weird sci-fi business of the resurrection here, uh, disposed of as quickly as I could think to do it. But we should talk about why this series is called Riverworld. One, this is not Earth. Or at least, if it is Earth, it has been radically physically transformed. So wherever this planet is, the habitable area is one very very, very long river valley that is nestled between pretty tall mountains. The river itself runs north-south around the entire planet. It begins at the North Pole, it runs south to the equator, and then north again over the southern hemisphere and back to the other side of the North Pole. At the start, the the river comes out of some mountains, and then at the end, uh, really just kind of behind these mountains, I guess, it empties into an ocean. And there is something in the ocean that we're going to talk about in just a moment. So what we have here are 37 billion people living along this river on this very strange planet that is clearly artificially constructed, or at least, you know, engineered, terraformed in some way. And these people, these 37 billion people, are every single person who ever existed from prehistory up until the early 21st century, when something happened that wiped out most of humanity. Uh, This has to do with some space aliens, and, and one of the people who's resurrected is actually one of these space aliens, and we do get to know him a little bit, but ultimately he ends up well, not mattering at all to the story, and so I'm actually a little unclear why Farmer has even included this bit, uh, unless it comes back in one of the other four volumes, and I have to believe that it will. But what I do find really interesting about some of the people that Farmer has included, some of the people maybe outside of uh, what we would think of when I say, hey, all 37 billion humans who've ever lived have been resurrected, uh, what I do find really interesting is that Farmer includes Neanderthals in this mix, and actually uh, also other hominid species, not just Homo sapiens, let alone Homo sapiens sapiens. And that is something uh, that we're definitely going to talk about in our themes and motifs segment, because I think it's a pretty big deal here. But okay, uh, there are loads of people, but there is no civilization. There's no prefabricated material culture here. It's just nature. Uh, and in fact, everyone is stark naked when they wake up. And for a while, this is just fine. Every, everyone's okay with this. It's a, it's a pleasant climate anyway. But eventually, they do get some clothes. And they get these clothes from the same place that they get their food. It's, it's some kind of dispenser. 
Everyone is resurrected with a kind of cup or, or bowl. They actually come to call them grails, which is great. That's a cool word. I mean, it does just is just like a Welsh word for bowl. Uh, but everyone has one of these grails, and uh, there are sculptures or, or maybe rock formations, I guess, that will fill them up with food. You know, I called them dispensers. This is really kind of magical, though. And so, what we're really talking about here is replicators. But you know, I guess Farmer didn't want to get sued by Gene Roddenberry, so he doesn't call them that. But I'm not worried about that. So I am actually going to go ahead and call them replicators. And these replicators are spaced about oh, a mile apart or so. And it is around these replicators that communities grow up because you know, they're the only source of food, just like, you know, in real civilization, communities grow up around source of food and water. Uh, I should say there is no animal life on the planet, or at least very little of it. So there's no means of creating animal husbandry, uh, and there, there doesn't seem to be any means of creating agriculture as well. And that's really the point I'm trying to get at here. But these resurrected people, they are able to make some stone tools, and then they also start using bamboo and wood in order to make shelters and also boats for the river. That's, uh, that's going to be important. Also, of course, weapons. Uh, these are clubs and axes, as well as bows and arrows. But the point is, there is essentially no farming and no metallurgy in Riverworld. So that is the material culture of Riverworld. But there is one more setting element that I want to talk about before I try to zip through the actual plot in, uh, I don't know, I'm going to go for two minutes or less. That's going to be the goal here. But the setting element that I, I want to focus on here for just another minute is that whoever it is that's responsible for resurrecting all of humanity has grouped people together with others from their own time and place but every segment of the river is populated by two groups that are uh, intentionally designed to be a strange juxtaposition. So uh, you get ancient Sumerians mixed with 20th century Japanese and, and, and that sort of thing. Uh, Farmer does a lot less with this than he might have, but I have to say it's a really interesting feature. That could have been like the single gimmick, actually, of some other science fiction or, or fantasy novel. And there is one more thing I should say on this note before we, we get on with it, which is simply that there is randomness in this mix, and nobody seems to have been resurrected with their, their family. Uh, spouses not resurrected together. There's no you know, parents with their kids or you know grandparents and, and, and so on. But all right, that is the setting of Riverworld. So let's actually get into the characters in the plot here, and we'll see how quickly I really do get through this. Farmer writes in a close third-person voice, and the character that he is following closely is Richard Francis Burton, the famous Victorian British explorer, diplomat, and translator. Uh, I am going to talk extensively about him in the next segment. Burton is resurrected with a hodgepodge of other people. This includes a space alien who died on Earth, also a Neanderthal. I've mentioned these people already. Uh, there's also a 20th century American who is very clearly Philip Jose Farmer. <laughs> uh, and then we also get the real-life person who inspired Alice in Wonderland. And there are some others in this mix as well. Oh, naturally, everyone is a little shocked to find themselves waking up naked with a bunch of strangers who are also naked, uh, and also none of them have any hair, and uh, uh, so people are looking for an explanation about what happened, and the quest for that explanation, that's really what's going to drive the plot of this story. Burton is an explorer both by vocation and inclination, and so he has this intrinsic motivation to want to find out where they are and also 
who's done this? Who's created this world? Who's brought them here? But he does also have an extrinsic motivation, which I think is a a pretty good move on Farmer's part here. And this extrinsic motivation is that he woke up before everyone else did. And when he woke up, he was somewhere else. He wasn't out here in this river valley. And he could see all these other inert bodies around him. But he could also see that there were people doing something, people who were clearly other and who are clearly the people who are responsible for all of this. And what this means is that Burton is able just categorically to reject any religious or or supernatural explanations for what has happened here. And he knows that other people, maybe they're space aliens, maybe they're homo sapiens, you know, maybe we're in the future, maybe we're in the past. He doesn't know the answer to that, but he knows that there is a rational scientific explanation for what has happened. And he is determined to find out who these people are and also where, uh, where those people are, but also, hey, where Riverworld is, where all the humans are now. So ultimately, this ends up being a story about Richard Francis Burton leading his group of people on an expedition upriver in a boat. They do have a series of adventures along the way, though this series of adventures, they don't really amount to a whole lot. Uh, They have to fight this group, and they narrowly survive, and they have to fight this other group, and this time they're captured and have to escape, and and so on. And it's not unexciting. None of it is is necessarily bad, but it is mostly world and theme building, because the really juicy bits of the plot are all going to come in the third act. And that third act here of this book, of Two Years Scattered Bodies Go, is really going to set up the, the rest of the series. So in the second act, Burton and his group, they realize that they've got someone in their midst who is not actually one of the resurrected, but is in fact one of the resurrectors uh, who is on an undercover mission to observe the resurrected people. And so they capture him and they interrogate him. And he explains that, hey, this is the 35th century. He's an enlightened future human. And his people have resurrected everyone in order to give them a chance at redemption and rehabilitation and salvation and enlightenment. Uh, That this is really a sort of man-made purgatory. But as soon as he's done explaining all of that, he kills himself with like, you know, a cyanide tooth or something like that. And so now Burton is even more determined to find the source of the river as as well as the people who made this world. And they've given those people a a name now. They're going to call them Ethicals. And Burton, uh, this whole book, by the way, takes place over nearly a decade with some real time jumps between chapters. Uh, And so Burton now, Burton does eventually make it to both the beginning and the end of the river, uh, though he's, he's lost his group at that point. It's really just him. And he knows that at the end of the river, there is a massive grailstone. It's uh, you know one of these replicators that is towering over the sea that the river empties into at the North Pole. And he imagines, and you know, I think we have to assume that he's right, and he imagines that this is a base for the ethicals, that this is where the ethicals are. But all the while that Burton is traveling around Riverworld, the ethicals themselves are after him because they have realized, finally, that he had woken up before the resurrection and that he's onto them. Basically, that's their, their motivation here. And so he has to spend a lot of time evading them, uh, which he does by killing himself and being resurrected elsewhere. Along the way, on this, this crazy journey all over Riverworld, he meets a renegade ethical who says that everything that Burton thinks he knows is wrong. 
The Ethicals are very much not ethical at all. They do not care about redemption. Uh, this is all just a science experiment for, for fun, really. And Burton and everyone else here are just being toyed with. Finally, very near the end of the book, Burton kills himself in order to, to travel someplace else. He's trying to get out of a, a jam. But this time, he is not resurrected in Riverworld. Uh, but in fact, he's resurrected in the Ethicals headquarters. So when he comes to, he's sitting around a table at, I guess, what is basically a committee meeting, and the ethicals tell him he has to stop traveling by suicide because he's actually only got a limited number of resurrections left. And in fact, that limited number might already be zero. So he needs to really, really try to not die from now on. They also tell him that they know that he has the potential to wreck their plans. This is actually something that's been foretold. There's, I don't know, some bit of uh, religion or prophecy, something going on here within the ethicals culture. We don't see much of that here in this book, but I imagine this will be really fleshed out in future installments. But uh, really the point here is, hey, they know Burton can totally wreck their plans, but they're okay with that. They don't believe in executions or imprisonment, and so... They're just going to take their chances and, and let Burton go free. Uh, also, you know, they want to be really clear. This whole thing, all of Riverworld, what this is for is everyone's redemption, everyone's salvation. But they also tell Burton that they're going to wipe his memory of this meeting, which I think kind of undermines the, the warning, if he's not going to remember the warning not to travel by suicide anymore. Uh, but that does not, in the end, actually matter, because when he wakes up in the River Valley, very far from the North Pole, he does remember, and he assumes that the renegade that he's met has somehow interfered with the, the memory wipe they were going to do, uh, which was just something they were going to do during the process of him being resurrected. And so the book ends with Burton more determined than ever to get into the Ethicals headquarters uh, on his own terms, I guess. But that is going to have to be for later installments in the series, because we are now at the point where this first book comes to an end. So... There is a lot of crazy stuff happening in this book. Uh, Farmer has taken several pretty crazy ideas and mashed them all up together. But what stood out to me most when I first heard about this book, when my, my military friend was telling me about this book, what really got me excited about it was that Richard Francis Burton is the protagonist. This really was the, the main selling point for me, and it's also pretty clear that, that Philip Jose Farmer has a real fondness of a sort for Burton, or, you know, an idealized version of Burton anyway, and that Farmer began writing Riverworld because he wanted to write about Burton. All of the other stuff, I think, came later or, or maybe was part of another idea that he had. He didn't know maybe at the start that these were going to end up being the same book, but he, he threw some of those ideas from another project into this one. All of that is crit fic, of, of course, but that's my, my sense of it. I'll, I'll talk more about that later, because really what I want to do is start our themes and motifs segment with Burton. Burton is someone that I've been interested in for most of my life, but I have recently read a book by Dane Kennedy. Uh, Dane Kennedy is a scholar at George Washington University. He, he really works on the, the 19th century British Empire, but this book that he wrote about Burton is called The Highly Civilized Man, Richard Burton and the Victorian World. Uh, this is a book that I, I really enjoyed. I highly recommend it. I, I'm, I'm not going to talk actually all that much about the, the book. Kennedy uh, is using Burton as a, a lens, as a way of thinking through what Victorian British culture was like, and he does have an argument and, and, and so on. It is, uh, it is an academic scholarly book more than it is a biography of Burton, but I do highly recommend it. 
So, all right, let's let's just get started with a bit of a primer on Burton. Richard Francis Burton lived during the 19th century. He died in 1890. He was active in the world for 50 years or so, starting in the 1840s. And he is a fairly fantastical figure. He really seems larger than life. And I have to say, his, his list of accomplishments seems nearly impossible. I mean, he certainly makes me feel like I waste too much time. Even though I only get five hours of sleep a night, I don't play video games, I only watch TV to podcast about with Valerie once a month, yet somehow Burton just did more than the rest of us are capable of. And so what I want to do is just catalog what those accomplishments were. I want to uh, put them in some categories and just go through them. And let's look first at, at Burton as an explorer, because that is really how I first encountered him as a kid when I was super interested in explorers, especially explorers of the 19th century. Uh, I would check out all these books from the library on people like, like Shackleton and Lewis and Clark and Pike and Powell and just on and on. And Burton was definitely on that list. And the story that I read as a kid was uh, about the expedition to the African Great Lakes in the 1850s. This was a, a smaller part of the broader European quest to find the source of the Nile River, which was a, a quest that really fascinated me. What I didn't read about as a kid, though, is that there was a ton of controversy around this expedition, uh, this expedition that Burton undertook with another explorer named Speak, uh, who was really the senior member of the, the team. That's not something that was presented to me in my, my childhood reading on Burton, uh, but it is something that Farmer brings up in this book a little bit, I should say. But Burton didn't only explore the African Great Lakes. He explored the Near East and the Horn of Africa. Uh, those are places he explored for the Royal Geographical Society. Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit more about that journey in the Near East when I get further down my outline here to uh, what I have headed as shenanigans. Uh, Burton was also a soldier and a diplomat, and it was as a soldier in the East India Company Army that Burton really got started as an explorer. His diplomatic career began in the 1860s. He uh, served as the British consul in a number of places, uh, including Equatorial Guinea, Brazil, Damascus, and, and then finally Trieste, which is where he died in 1890. Uh, I should say, too, that Burton, in his capacity here as a consul uh, to Brazil, actually shows up in the uh, uh, Borges short story, The Aleph, that uh, uh, Brandon and I covered on uh, Patreon a few years ago. That is a, a really fantastic, really awesome, weird fiction short story that's well worth your time. But back to Burton. So while Burton was serving as a consul in Africa and South America, he did also do a bit of exploring. He sent dispatches and, and also just whole books that, that he wrote. Uh, he sent these back to Britain. Uh, these really just detailed what he'd seen and what he found. And I think Really, Burton's motivating force was just this insatiable curiosity. And it was an insatiable curiosity that wasn't limited solely to geographical explanation, because he was also supremely interested in the languages and religions and customs of the people that he encountered on his travels. And, and Burton was even a founding member of the Royal Anthropological Society in the British Empire. And Burton was also, he was just this tremendously gifted linguist who probably spoke more than two dozen languages, and he could also switch between different dialects of languages with almost perfect accuracy. Uh, this is something, it's just a, a, a real gift. This is the thing now as an adult that really blows me away. Uh, when I was a kid, I was envious of him as an explorer. As an adult, I'm 
envious, well, I guess I'm maybe most envious of his time management, but, but these languages, this is the thing that I am second most envious of for sure. And Burton also was a scholar. He did a ton of scholarly work on the languages and cultures that, that fascinated him, you know, that he encountered on his travels. And Burton, probably, if you've heard of Burton before, maybe just casually, then uh, you've probably heard of him for the thing he's most famous for, which is uh, also something that was definitely not in the kid's book that I read. Uh, and this is translating the Kama Sutra, uh, though that, I should say, is a bit of a misattribution. Uh, I'm not going to get into that, but we will come back to Burton and sex. Uh, but Burton did also translate, and, and in this case, he really did translate, The Thousand and One Nights. And his notes for this book, and, and also his notes for many others, are really excellent. And his travel writing as well, I should say, is full of what today we would call field anthropology. And much of it is just absolutely fascinating. But even with all of that, even as impressive as these accomplishments are, Burton, I think, is really overshadowed by his own image. And this is an image that he himself cultivated. It's the image of him as a scoundrel and uh, an off-color Byronic hero in his own story, maybe is the way to put that. And this is where I want to come to the heading on my outline that I've got labeled as shenanigans. Uh, though, you know, we could also just call it scandals, I suppose. Uh, for one, to, to start, as a young man, Burton was kicked out of university for going to horse races. Uh, this was Trinity College at Oxford, by the way, a beautiful place uh, where I have spent some time uh, not going to horse races. Uh, Burton also liked to tell this really scandalous story about how, as a soldier, he was sent undercover to investigate a male brothel in India, though there is absolutely no evidence that such a thing ever happened. Uh, this was a really scandalous story in Victorian Britain, and he enjoyed the, the notoriety. And it is a story that Farmer repeats here in this book. The, the Farmer accepts that this story is true and has Burton explain what was going on with that, though I think most scholars today think that this is just a story that Burton made up to gain this notoriety. Probably, though, the best known of Burton's shenanigans is that he went on the Hajj. He went on the annual Muslim pilgrimage to Mecca. Uh, this is something that he did in 1853. And Burton did this in disguise. Uh, it was several different disguises, actually. He uh, first pretended to be Iranian, and then he later changed costume and language to pretend to be a Sunni Muslim. He did also have a slave boy with him on this trip. I mean, this is a boy that Burton owned as property, which is something that I think is quite disconcerting. And Burton wrote about the experience of going on the Hodge in disguise in a book that he published about a year later. It is really interesting for expressing how much he enjoyed and, and also was affected by, spiritually affected by, the rituals in Mecca. But Burton does also play up how dangerous the journey was for him, both the, the travel itself, where his group was beset by bandits, and also the dangers of being discovered. I mean, he, he claims that he would certainly have been killed if anyone had discovered that he was a European. I'm pretty dubious, pretty skeptical about that claim, but I will say I am also no expert. And if you are an expert on this and, and think that Burton was right, I would love to hear about that. But my sense is that Burton was playing up the danger here for his you know, own self-promotional purposes. So that is just a, a little primer on Burton, because Burton is the protagonist here of the Riverworld series. And and as an explorer, as a linguist, as an anthropologist, Riverworld is certainly a paradise for Burton or anyone like Burton. And Burton is just a supremely interesting figure. I've been enamored of him since I was a kid, for sure. But 
Uh, fair warning here. I'm going to uh, complain about his appearance in the book in our next segment when we get to strengths and weaknesses. Burton is not going to be in the strength column. But before we get to that segment, I, I do want to talk about a real motif of the, the book, and that is salvation. The idea of salvation takes as a, a given that we, that is to say human beings, are inherently bad or maybe even evil by nature, or it you know could be because we've fallen, but that as individuals, we can try to overcome our bad or evil nature to both be and do good. Uh, also inherently wrapped up in this is the idea that we should do that. We should all be trying to do that. And look, one or another flavor of this idea is at the core of most of our religions. And here in Riverworld, Farmer is working in specifically a Christian context by pairing salvation with this very real bodily resurrection. And we are told explicitly by the ethicals, by the people running Riverworld, that salvation is what Riverworld is for. Ethicals are just better than us. They claim that they've given up violence, at least, and presumably they've given up some of our other uglinesses like envy and possessiveness and, and, and so on. And many of them seem even to have attained a type of enlightenment, or at least, you know, this is a claim that they're making, and that as a result of having attained this type of enlightenment, they have transformed as a, as a result. This is obviously an idea that Farmer is taking from, from Buddhism rather than Christianity here. But now the ethicals have done this. They've made this world in order to give us the same opportunity. And that's why they've resurrected us. It's a, it's a chance for us to give up our violence and our envy and possessiveness and so on. The ethicals have tried pretty hard to make this easy as well. I mean, for one, you get a lot of lifetimes to keep trying. Also, there is no real need for competition over resources because everyone gets food from the replicators. And also, there are no children to pass on any wealth to. They've also provided some recreational drugs to help people on their path to enlightenment. Uh, this includes marijuana, but the real drug that is of plot interest here is a psychedelic drug. Burton and others regard this drug as, as therapeutic or, or cathartic, or at least it is for some people, because it should be clear that some others have been spurred to homicidal rage from, from using this drug. And this drug is an interesting part of the story. It, it does clearly date this book to the late 1960s or the early 1970s, especially uh, given that this book is very much about religion, very much about salvation, has these ideas from Christianity and Buddhism, and, and the drug use here is wrapped up in spirituality. I do want to say this is not a major part of this story, though only because it's not a major part of Burton's experience. It's something that happens a lot in the first act. There's a big episode about it, and then a little bit in the second act, but then it disappears from there on out. But I think we have to imagine that for other people who are not having this adventure to go looking for the ethicals, this maybe is a bigger part of what their life is, is like, what their life is about. But the deal is that even with all of this help, we still just can't get it right. Farmer gives a lot of word count to explaining that violence is simply in our nature, that violence against one another is just at the core of who we are. And let me give an example from the text. This passage is uh, very early in the book, and I'm, I'm, I'm quoting here. He looked around for a stick or a club. He did not have the slightest idea what was on the agenda for humanity, but if it was left unsupervised or uncontrolled, it would soon be reverting to its normal state. Once the shock was over, people would be looking out for themselves, and that meant that some would be bullying others. 
And this comes only 10 pages into the book, and, and because it is there so early and so plainly, this really feels like a mission statement, right? Farmer is telling us to keep an eye on this. Later in the book, though, though still in the first act, but later in the book, Burton has a conversation about human nature with another character. Uh, this is a character named Frigate. This character is clearly a stand-in for the author. This is Farmer. I mean, he's called Frigate here, but he's Farmer. Uh, I'm going to talk more about that in the, the next segment, the, the strengths and uh, weaknesses segment. But this conversation is one of those classic sci-fi conversations where two interlocutors discuss a big idea that is central to the book's theme. Uh, this is a, a convention that is just, just one of my favorites of the, the genre. And in this case, Frigate is explaining to Burton the work of the amateur anthropologist Robert Ardrey, who published a book in 1966 called The Territorial Imperative. And in this book, Ardrey argued for violent possessiveness as a hereditary instinct that humans have because of our descent from a killer ape. And in short, the, the argument here is that we are violent and competitive by nature, and civilization is our attempt to corral and curtail those awful instincts and to impose some level of cooperation onto us. Now, this book, and also several others that Audrey wrote, this book sparked a huge response and also a big debate from and among professional anthropologists, and his work has had a pretty serious, long-lasting influence. The opposing model of human behavior, the model of human behavior that opposes Ardrey's model, is that violence and competition are not biologically driven, but in fact are learned behaviors, right? That they're culture, they are nurture rather than nature. Now, I want to be clear that this is not my discipline, it is not my field, and I do not really keep up on it other than that I listen to a few podcasts about it. But my understanding is that this is where anthropology and evolutionary psychology are today, right? That our understanding of prehistoric humans is that cooperation was actually the default mode, and that civilization was not a way of policing violence among primitives, but in fact was the act of violently subjugating and exploiting people. So for Ardrey, he saw civilization as, uh, well, a civilizing process. But I think the consensus today is that actually civilization was itself violent. But Farmer wrote the entire Riverworld series before that became the, the dominant consensus view of anthropology. And of course, you know, that's going to swing the other way at some point or, or go off in some entirely different direction. This is what scholars and scientists are always doing, reevaluating our understanding of things from new evidence and new models and so on. But what really matters here is that I have the sense that Farmer does not like Audrey's conclusions and that Riverworld is actually going to be a series of books about showing us that our violence and our greed are not genetic, but in fact are learned. And if they're learned, then they can be unlearned. And here is what Burton says when Frigate explains Audrey's argument to him, and I think this is very important. This is all very interesting. Let me point out to you, however, that almost every member of resurrected humanity comes from a culture which encourages war and murder and crime and rape and robbery and madness. It is these people among whom we are living and with whom we have to deal. There may be a new generation someday, but like it or not, we are in a world populated by beings who quite often act as if they were killer apes. So the question is, can we learn to overcome our cultural encouragement towards war and murder and so on? This, this big list that Burton has here. Uh, maybe another way of putting this right is, can we achieve salvation? 
Farmer is asking a really big question here, and in this thought experiment, he has resurrected tens of billions of people in order to give us a really large stage on which to find out if we can or not. I say stage, but I guess really it's a, a laboratory, right? Farmer is running a thought experiment here, and so we see these ideas in action then as the plot gets going, and let's talk about that a little bit. As Burton travels through Riverworld, he keeps encountering societies that are at war with one another. And even though this is a world with no agriculture, no metallurgy, it turns out that there is still one valuable resource for those who just want more stuff than other people have. And this is the cylinders that people use to get food from the replicators. These cylinders, these are, are keyed to individual users. They won't work if that user is dead or not present, so you can't just take it from somebody and use it. But if you enslave people, you can have them use the replicator and then only give them enough to live on. You, you can take all of the, the valuable stuff for yourself. And this includes the, the, the high-calorie food, you know, meat and so on, but also the various drugs, the tobacco, the, the marijuana, and the, the psychedelic drug. And Burton encounters several slave societies like this as he travels, and, and he himself is even briefly enslaved, along with his whole group. This is one of the adventures they have in Act 2. And this adventure, this episode, is the first encounter with another historical figure who becomes a, a real recurring character, in this book at least, though I think presumably in later Riverworld installments as well. This person is Hermann Goering, the, the high-ranking Nazi official who was more or less the, the second-in-command to Hitler himself, though, to be clear, that is simplifying things quite a bit, simplifying things a whole lot, really. Uh, I don't want to spend a, a lot of time on Goering. He doesn't deserve it. He doesn't deserve anything from us. But Farmer has him in this story for a reason, so I will say a little bit more. Goering survived the Second World War. He was the, the highest-ranking official to be put on trial at the Nuremberg trials. He really was the highest-ranking Nazi official to survive the Second World War by a pretty big gulf. Everyone else had committed suicide or, or, or died in some other way before the war ended. And Goering was sentenced to death, though he did also manage to kill himself with a, a cyanide pill before he could be hanged. Here in Riverworld, Goering has been resurrected outside of this Nazi context. In fact, no one knows where Hitler and Himmler and Goebbels are, uh, for example, or any, anyone else. But what Goering ends up doing is recreating the Third Reich on his own. And it is a slave society. It is anti-Semitic, though Goering himself says that he doesn't really care about that. He doesn't care about the anti-Semitism. This is just a, a, an expedient way of creating a cult-like nationalism. I should say, too, that this does reflect the conventional understanding of the real historical Goering's position on the way that Jews were, were treated in the Nazi regime, the, the vilification, the persecution, the enslavement, and then, of course, the, the murder of millions of Jews under the Nazi regime, uh, which is just to say that, that Goering was not an ideologue, but he, he did find this to be an easy and useful tool. He found this treatment of Jews, he found this anti-Semitism to be a useful tool. What's motivating Goering here in Riverworld is an insane, an intense sense of competition with Adolf Hitler. Uh, Adolf Hitler had turned on Goering before he killed himself at the, the very, very end of the war. And so Goering now, in his second chance at life, he doesn't want to atone for his crimes. What he wants to do is build an even better Reich than Hitler did. He wants to out-Hitler Hitler. He wants to get 
back at Hitler. He wants to get his revenge on Hitler. He wants to show Hitler that he was always his most loyal lieutenant and also his most capable, and in fact, more capable than Hitler himself. And so really what's happening here, right, is that Farmer is using Gurian as an example of how our lust for violence is not necessarily rooted in material greed, but is wrapped up in a host of other things. But this is not all that Farmer is doing with Gurian here. This is a story about salvation, about redemption, about atonement. And Gurian is not left out of this, even though, you know, I should say that his arc is not as clear and not as easy as Darth Vader's redemption arc is, but he does get one, or at least part of one here. Burton and Gurian keep encountering each other, even when they die. They are resurrected in the same place. And this is something that should not happen. Uh, and even when they get separated you know, without dying and resurrecting, Burton will eventually discover that Gurian is in the same village that he's just arrived at. And this lets Farmer give Gurian an arc by showing the changes in his character since Burton last saw him. This is actually a pretty good storytelling technique here. And in this first Riverworld book, at least, we do not get to see Gurian become a force for good in the world. But at the end of the book, he is staring his own evil actions in the face. He's confronting his complicity in the murder of millions. He's also confronting his complicity in having started a war that also killed millions of people. And he's confronting the fact that these behaviors have become his instinctive behavior. And now he's having nightmares and he wants to die, but he can't. Because in Riverworld, you have to confront yourself. There is no escape because life is eternal. And when we leave Gurin in this book, he's having a serious business breakdown. And I suspect that in the next books, he's going to go through this breakdown. He's going to come out the other side as a new person. He's going to come out the other side as someone who wants to atone for his sin and who wants to earn salvation through good works and probably will do something heroically redemptive at, at, at some point along the, the way. You know, that, that would be my guess. That's certainly what I would do as a writer anyway. All right. We are near the end of this episode now. So... Let's talk some strengths and some weaknesses, and let's do weaknesses first. Even though I spent a lot of time in this episode talking about Burton, because I am really interested in the real Richard Francis Burton, I think it was a serious mistake to make him the protagonist of this story. Or, I don't know, maybe a better way to put it is that Farmer executed this in a, a strange way. The beginning of this book it definitely feels like some weird Richard Burton fan fiction in which the author has inserted himself as a character whose sole function is to tell Richard Burton how awesome he is. In the very first few days of the resurrection, for example, a major plot point is that Alice Little, uh, this is the, the person who inspired Lewis Carroll to write Alice in Wonderland, uh, Alice Little is resurrected with them. And one night she and Burton use the psychedelic drug together and they, they end up having sex when the drug wears off, Alice is ashamed of it, and Burton mocks her for her shame. And this is all wrapped up in a, a lot of discussion of Burton's uh, flaunting of Victorian sexual mores. And this goes absolutely nowhere. It doesn't end up mattering for anything. And while I'm definitely here for the premise of, what if we were all resurrected on an alien planet without any civilization and had to earn our salvation? I am not at all interested in the premise of, hey, what if Richard Francis Burton had sex with Alice in Wonderland? I'm just not interested in that. And, and to be honest, it felt a little bit like I was reading some of the secret parts of Farmer's own diary. 
Farmer also spends a lot of time on Burton's anti-Semitism. Uh, and what I mean really is that Farmer spends a lot of time apologizing for it. Uh, Farmer puts a Jewish character in this group with Burton. He has this character know enough about Burton to be familiar with the book in which he, he did write some pretty harsh things about Jewish bankers in Damascus. And Farmer gives Burton an opportunity to defend himself. And then he also uses the character Frickett, who, you know, to remind you, is just Farmer. He's Mary Sue character here. Uh, he gives the character Frickett here a lot of dialogue defending Burton as well. And I just didn't need an apology for Burton in this book, especially since this ends up not going anywhere, uh, and, you know, unless we want to connect it to the presence of, of Hermann Goering. And, and maybe we do, maybe this will go somewhere in later books in the series, but it just seemed out of place. And what it really seemed like is that Farmer was incredibly self-conscious of making someone who is clearly considered to have been anti-Semitic the hero of his story. But even beyond that, this whole thing felt a little bit like a mashup of historical figures, a, a kind of what if all these famous people from different periods were stuck in a room together story. And I do often enjoy that type of story. We have done here on this show, we have done Roger Zelazny's version of this. That was A Night in the Lonesome October. I loved that book. And I would also be super excited to do Alan Moore's The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. But I actually think that this move just doesn't work in this book. I think it's the idea, actually, that has to go, even though it seems like it is the first idea that Farmer started with. This is a, a real kill-your-darlings situation, because this book simply would have been a lot stronger if the protagonist were just some dude and not Richard Francis Burton. Because otherwise, this is a really interesting world, and Farmer has this awesome concept here that he's using to ask a really important question. Taking his cue from Robert Ardrey and the, the territorial impulse and staging that scholarly debate as a science fiction story, that is the sort of thing that gets my heart racing. It's the sort of thing that makes me stand up and slow clap. The Burton stuff doesn't do anything to support that. And in fact, it just gets in the way of it. It almost undermines the really awesome concept that Farmer has here. But I will say that by the end of the book, Farmer really drops all of the Burton fan fiction. I mean, Burton, you know, he's still the protagonist, of course. But by the end, Farmer has dropped the sort of fawning over Burton, and he really does just start telling his story rather than praising his character. And so on top of this really compelling theme, Farmer also has crafted a really compelling mystery about who is responsible for this totally crazy world <laughs> that Farmer has invented and what is their agenda. Farmer shows us that there is at least one person high up in this organization that's responsible for doing all of this. There, there's one person there who has his own agenda that runs counter to the organizations. And so there's some intrigue and some espionage going on here as well. And Farmer ends this book just as he raises these stakes, which is a great move for leaving us wanting more. And in the end, I very much am left wanting more. I would be super keen to continue on in this series. And in fact, I suspect that Riverworld has a, a lot in common with the, the Chronicles of Amber, which we did just last month, and also of which this book is a contemporary. They're only a year apart. And what I mean by this is that I suspect that these are series that people remember fondly because of the awesome stuff in books two through five, rather than what the series is like at the beginning. And I'm going to go out on that note. I'm going to close the review here by looking ahead, by uh, yearning to read more books in the series, which certainly I will do personally, even if I don't get to do it for the show. I do hope that you will visit the ATOS forum at claytemplemedia.com or stop by our subreddit and talk with me about the themes and motifs and the strengths and weaknesses that I have focused on here. 
I don't really know how beloved this series is, but I do expect that I have maybe been inflammatory in my suggestion that the uh, protagonist is a fundamental flaw of the book and that it would be vastly improved by ditching him. And so uh, I would love to hear your thoughts on that. Please come and, and take me to task on that. And I am also aware that that adaptation that I mentioned at the, the start of the show, that 2010 sci-fi miniseries adaptation of Riverworld, uh, I know that that replaced all of the characters with, with new characters. I have not seen it, though. But if you have, I would love to know how that worked for you and what you thought worked or, or didn't work by making that choice. Also, hey, if you're an anthropologist and you want to correct my understanding of the state of your field, I would love that too. Uh, in fact, I would love some suggested reading as well. But all right, that is going to do it for this episode. I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find me and all our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. On Twitter, I'm at GL McDorman, and the network is at claytemplemedia. So next month, we will be reading The House with a Clock in Its Walls by John Belairs. This is something I remember fondly from my childhood and am super, super excited about. But until then, I hope you'll remember that if more of us valued food and cheer and song above hoarded gold, it would be a merrier world. <laughs>